Jesus came to earth. He died. He rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven. Jesus is gone. He rules with sovereign authority from heaven's throne, but for nearly 2,000 years, Jesus has been gone. Jesus will return to earth to fully establish his kingdom. This one who has paid the penalty of sin, this one who has conquered death, this one who rules the universe from heaven's throne will come back. And I'd like us to think about these biblical truths and to bring them home to bear in our own lives. Think about this. Someday you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You will bow before his throne. Standing before the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator and the ruler of the universe, the Lamb of God's sacrifice for your sin, you will bow in his presence. Can you imagine kneeling there before his glorious presence as he is seated on his gleaming throne, surrounded by angelic hosts? And as you are there bowed in absolute humility, in utter humanity, you hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to the joy of your eternal reward. You have been faithful in small things. I assign to you now great responsibility in my kingdom. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. That is not a fairy tale. If we believe anything about the Bible, that is reality. And it may be your reality. The reality is that we will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of the universe. You will. As I thought about that this week, in one place it made me to shudder and to think, that's me. I will be before Christ. It's not a fairy tale. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I speak today, I think, largely to those who have come to place their saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His resurrection power. As I speak to you, I ask, Christian, Christian in the genuine sense of the term, do you live in active anticipation of that day? Do you see yourself as a steward of the returning Son? This is how Jesus taught his followers to view life. 
As followers of the coming Christ, we are entrusted with a stewardship. That means that we have a responsibility to manage our lives in the interest of Jesus until He returns and demands an accounting. We see this truth expressed by Jesus in the parable that is before us in Luke chapter 19 as he prepared to end his first mission on earth and to return to the Father. The context is laid out for us there in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. In verse 11 we read, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. While they were listening to what? While they were listening apparently to the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus. They were listening to this. This would again indicate very possibly that the people are here at this public meal in Zacchaeus' home as Jesus has come to his home. Zacchaeus has confessed his wrong, his sin, has made things right by his offer of restitution. And as Jesus is teaching Zacchaeus and winning this lost man to salvation, there are those overhearing the conversation while they are listening to this, he tells this parable. The purpose of the parable, before we get into it in verse 12, is expressed in verse 11, the middle of the verse. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now what does that mean? We're in Jericho. Jerusalem is a six-hour walk away. Jesus is nearing the holy city and Passover. Messianic expectations are intense at this point in time. Many of the Passover pilgrims believe that Jesus is Messiah. Many of the people here staying the night in Jericho believe that he's Messiah. Many who live here believe that he's Messiah. And for good reason. For these last several years, he has been walking about Palestine, healing people, raising the dead, creating food and drink and teaching with authority that could be none other than that of a prophet of God. Could this be Messiah? It must be Messiah. And here we are now, only six hours' walk to the holy city Passages such as Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah 35 certainly are overwhelming people. These prophecies that when the king will come, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron in righteousness. That when he comes, the desert will blossom like a rose. The curse will be removed and Messiah will rule. Is this one not capable of this? He can create food. He can still the sea. He can raise the dead. Can he not rule with a rod of iron over the nations of the earth? The day is coming. Isaiah's prophecies are about to unfold. And they believe now that this journey to Jerusalem is nothing less than a procession to lay claim to the kingdom of God. A grand march to kingdom consummation. What's in Jesus' mind? In Jesus' mind looms a stake. He knows that he is about to die. He will set up his kingdom at Jerusalem, but that will be his second coming. This journey is a journey to death. So Jesus labors here 
to prepare his disciples for the future that will be, steering them clear away from the false notions that reside in their heads. They are right to think that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem will be climactic, but not in the way that they think. And so Jesus tells a parable. Seeking to bring his followers to understand the future. And he says in verse 12, in this context, a man of noble birth went to a distant country and gave and to have himself appointed king and then to return. We have to do a little labor here. Because in that setting, that was just news from the front page of the newspaper. But in our setting, that makes absolutely no sense at all. Why does a, why does a king go away to another place to become a king? What's going on here? Palestine, remember, is under Roman control. It was not at all unusual in the empire for a ruler to travel to Rome where the emperor would crown him king of the province that he ruled as a vassal ruler. You remember in the Matthew account of Jesus' birth, we hear of King Herod. King Herod was exactly one of these men. He was called a king, but he was a vassal king of the Roman emperor. He had traveled himself to Rome and had been given this title of king. All three of his sons had done the same thing. They had all made their journey over to Rome and asked to be crowned king over the region of Palestine that they were ruling. So this is very common for them to think in this term of a ruler leaving the people that he's ruling and going to a place where he is given the title of king. Now remember, Jesus is teaching, he's not just telling us a nice little story, but he is teaching here about his own ministry and how his followers are to respond to that ministry when he leaves at death. Think of it. A king leaves. A ruler leaves to be given a kingship. And as he leaves, he assigns some responsibilities. Or before he leaves, verse 13, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Ten stewards, each given a sum equal to between three and four months' wages. It's not a massive sum of money. Not all that the king owns or anything like that, and let's not read too much into the details of the parable, but he just gives them a sum of money and says, be responsible with this money. Put it to work and get it to earn more money. I'll be back. This is a stewardship. They have a responsibility to manage their master's deposit in their master's interest until he returns and demands an accounting. It is a stewardship. The money is not theirs. These individuals are servants. There's not even a choice to agree to take this stewardship. This is simply their job for a period of time until the man returns to his kingdom. So having commissioned his servants, the ruler leaves. And then we read in verse 14 a twist in the story. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Again, it's ripped from the headlines of the day, so to speak. Archelaus, remember King Herod? One of his sons, Archelaus, went to Rome and said after his father's death, I want to be a king like daddy was. 
And so he goes to the emperor and presents his case. This is a historical fact that has taken place before Jesus gives this parable. So the people, this is very, very obvious to them what he's talking about, the kind of situation. When Archelaus went to Rome and said, I want to be king, the Jews were so upset about the possibility, because Archelaus was one rotten man, basically, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 people after him, after he left, following him, and they went to the emperor at Rome and protested. A little side note, when they protested, those 50 going all the way from Palestine, 8,000 Jews in Rome also gathered around the meeting place and protested. Archelaus was one nasty dude, and they knew it and wanted nothing to do with him being king over them. And so they protested, and just to finish the story quickly, he, Augustus kind of split the difference. He called him ethnarch and said, if you do a good job, you can become king later. It made absolutely no one happy, and Archelaus never became king because he never should have been in the position to begin with. But think about these people listening to Jesus' parable. Th this makes perfect sense to them. A man goes to another place to become a king, and a delegation is sent after him to say, we don't want him to be king. What is Jesus teaching us here? I am going to leave. I am going to receive a kingdom in another place. And while I am gone, my citizens will rebel against me. In fact, the rebellion is on and Jesus knows it. It's just not clear to anybody at this point in time. So in like manner, Jesus is soon to return to earth to receive the kingdom, or, or to, soon to leave earth, rather, to receive the kingdom, and then with authority, he will come back. That authority, of course, is gained in his resurrection. But while he is gone, he entrusts stewards with a responsibility, while his subjects rebel against his rule. Now we notice with these stewards that they have the same amount given to them. There are other parables that Jesus teaches in which the amounts given are different, and that teaches a different lesson. We all are different, given different responsibilities, we are given different gifts. But in this place we have just the same gift given the same stewardship, rather, deposited with each individual. And so it probably points us more to think in terms of life and to think in terms of gospel. We all have one life, and we all have one gospel to share with the lost. We all have the same responsibility in that sense of the term. This stewardship is placed, then, with Jesus' people as he is gone, and they should expect that the society in which they live does not accept the reign of Jesus Christ. He's preparing them for this world. It's going to make a lot more sense after he dies and rises from the dead, but at this place in time, this is what they believe, or are to believe. So, the next point of Jesus' parable is to help the disciples discern that the trip to Jerusalem will not be a grand march to fame and power. Rather, as 14 says, they, he will be hated. But when he does return, verse 15, he was made king in this land. However, and that is however in, in contrast to verse 14 and those who are fighting against him, and he returned home. 
So in this other land, this far-off land, despite the outcry against him, he is indeed crowned king, and he does indeed return. And what is his first task when he gets back? His first task is to call the stewards around him and to ask for an accounting of their stewardship in verse 15. He returned home and sent for the stewards, the servants, to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Were they faithful with his deposit? The first steward shows up in verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. He gives his account. He's been faithful. He has fulfilled his stewardship. And the nobleman, the now the king, says, verse 17, Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Faithful with a modest deposit of three to four months' wages, he is rewarded with the administration of ten cities. Think of this. Now, obviously, for most of us, that doesn't sound very thrilling. To be the mayor of ten cities sounds like a major headache. I don't think I'd really want to do that. But let's think in context of this setting and this situation. These are servants who are given a stewardship. These are administrators by right and by trade. But think of this. Secondly, the cities over which these individuals will rule, if we think in terms of the kingdom of God and Christ returning to earth and giving out stewardship, these are cities in which there is no crime. Getting a little more interesting? Can you imagine running ten cities where there's no crime? Can you imagine running ten cities under which the ultimate emperor and ruler is the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns from the throne of Jerusalem with a rod of iron, insisting that all walk in righteousness? Can you imagine ruling ten cities where there are no natural disasters, where there is no disease? Can you imagine such a privilege to reign with Jesus Christ and to do his bidding? You see, the ruling of cities in our day is all about managing depravity. And that's why it's so hard and why it's so ugly. Because it's all about who gets their way. It's all about the money it's all about the prestige. It's all about jockeying and leveraging power and wealth and influence. Not when Jesus reigns. All of that will be put to rest. There will be one ruler and one Lord. And Jesus Christ will reign supreme. Ten cities in such a kingdom would be a great joy. Now, Islam, I think of here in these terms, it claims that Jesus was a prophet sent from Allah, but that Muhammad is a later and superior prophet of Allah. I think on this point, if nowhere else, we see clearly that this is not the case, that this is not a superior thinking in the area of Islam. The vision of eternal reward, such as is indicated here, is one place that Jesus proves the superior prophet. Muhammad's vision of heaven was one of rest without work. Christ's vision was one of energetic work operating in the midst of rest. What is your vision of a great vacation? 
we'd all probably fill in something a little differently. But I grew up on the East Coast, and for us, vacation was to go to the shore, to the ocean. And to this day, it's sort of in my blood. I could take a bench, a, whatever they're called, a, a beach seat. I've, I lost it. I haven't been there for so long. But I could take one of those little seats that you sit down and plop it down in the sand and look at that water for a very long time. I could do that today, as a matter of fact. And to listen as those waves crash against the beach, I could just sit there, not read, not bring any music or any electronic stuff. I could just sit there in that seat and listen to that water and smell the salt air and hear the gulls sing. I could sit there for a very long time and rest. Where's your place? As they call it, where's your happy spot? How long could I sit there on that beach? Right at the moment, it feels like you could sit there a very long time, but how about two days, three days, four, a week, a month, a year? There's a place where paradise becomes hell if it never changes and if there's no work. God created us to work. Rest is good. But if all we do is rest and sit, it becomes very old. This is the great vision of Scripture, the great vision of the prophet Jesus, that eternity will be a place of labor. But it will be a place of work where everything that we do is fulfilled. There's no more curse. There's no more sweat of the brow. Everything cooperates in the world in which we live. And by the way, it's not some sort of ethereal thing in the sky somewhere. The eternal state ultimately will be on a renewed earth that works. That works the way it was supposed to work. And we will work the way we were supposed to work. And we'll find our joy and our gladness in work. And when we rest... It will be the rest of work. And when we take a break from our work, it will be a break at the throne of Jesus Christ to worship His name. Our rest will be singing. Our rest will be rejoicing because there will be no fatigue and no disease and no resistance from a cursed and fallen world. What a great vision Jesus paints for us and the Old Testament prophets paint as one has said, the reward is not rest, but opportunity for wider service. That's the great vision. We need to rest. We need vacation. But we were meant to work. Here are ten cities to manage in my kingdom. What a privilege for this servant. The second servant shows up at verse 18 of Luke 19, verse 18, the second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. He gives his account and receives his reward. Verse 19, the master answered, You take charge of five cities. In this great kingdom, this individual is given five cities to rule. His reward is also far beyond his stewardship, but is proportionately less than the servant that earned ten minas. But 
the great joy of these two servants, the one who has earned ten and the one who has earned five, is now contrasted sharply with the third individual that is picked out of these ten. And we read of his accounting in verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, in and reap what you did not sow. He returns the deposit in full. This man is not a thief. But has he obeyed his master? Not at all. His excuse is that he's afraid of his master. The master was harsh, an exacting man, known to profit from the labors of others. It's really a lame excuse, a cover for a man fearful to take legitimate risk in order to obey his master. Rather than energetic obedience, what we have here is self-centered inaction. It's inertia. He doesn't move. He just puts it in a cloth and leaves it there. The master immediately exposes the folly of this thinking. When he says in verse 22, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? We're not told if the master is truly harsh and exacting, and obviously that's not a reflection of who Jesus is. That's not the point of the parable to say that Jesus will be this kind of a returning king who likes to leverage money out of people where he's not really done anything to get it. The point is that the servant's excuse is utterly ridiculous. If you believe that this is how your master operates, then why did you not do what he said and at least make some interest by depositing it with the money lenders of the day? What possible good could come from hiding away this coin? A painful silence follows this obvious observation, and a terrifying judgment is passed down in verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, Take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Give it to the one who will invest it wisely. Now that creates an objection on the part of those who are listening. Well, what's going on here? This guy's only got one, and we're going to give it to the guy who already has ten. Verse 25, sir, they said he already has ten. Is this a situation of simply making the poor poor and the rich richer? Is that what Jesus is up to here? Clearly not. What he is doing is saying that this man will invest what I have given to him wisely, and I have entrusted him with ten cities, I'm going to entrust him with another mina so that he invests it wisely. I trust him to do this. In fact, he replies, verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. This is a chilling response. For the faithful, there will be rich reward and further responsibility. But for those who fail their stewardship and produce nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
The man does not get a second chance, nor does he receive any reward, nor is the deposit left with him. It's taken away. This master has given the first two servants 15 cities. He doesn't even let this servant keep his mina. The point is not about the wealth of the master and the king. The point is about his grace and the accountability that his stewards have when he returns. He is fabulously rich but he rewards those who have been faithful with their trust. Doing a little interpretation at this point is tricky. How do we read this part of the parable? Some argue this man stands for the saved who enter the kingdom but lose all reward. They have not lived for Christ, and so as they enter the kingdom, they are stripped of all reward. They're permitted entrance into the kingdom, but so as by fire, they are purified, but with nothing to show for it and no responsibility given them in the kingdom. They're just a citizen of the kingdom who just doesn't really have much to do. This may be the case. There are some that defend this ably. But there are, I think, better reasons to believe that this man represents rather those who seem to belong to Jesus, but whose disobedience reveals that they never really did. I say this along a number of lines. First of all, from outside this context, we read in Matthew chapter 25, 29 and 30, Jesus gives a similar parable, and this third individual who does not invest his deposit the statement about him is that he is cast outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like heaven. Secondly, in verse 22, this servant is called a wicked servant. That doesn't sound like those who enter into heaven according to Revelation 21 and verse 8. The wicked are cut out of the kingdom. They're not permitted in. Thirdly, even what he has is take, taken away from him. He's empty-handed. And fourthly, his relationship to his master evidences a lack of faith. Does it not? You are a harsh and exacting master. I think the picture much better is one who is seen as a servant of Christ, but whose disobedience exposes his lostness. Having dealt with the stewards upon his return, the king addresses now his rebellious subjects. By the way, this is X-rated material in our culture. You can't read this verse. It's evil. It's not politically correct. But let me remind you, it's what Jesus said. If Jesus said it, who are we to not read Luke chapter 19 and verse 27? Jesus said, But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I don't rejoice in those words. But that's what Jesus said. That's the parable that he taught, and he could have left that off. But what Jesus is teaching us very clearly here is that in that setting, of course, this would not have been altogether unusual. But what Jesus is teaching us 
through this parable is that there will be an accounting of those who reject Christ as well. There's two accountings here. The accounting of those who are the followers or the servants of King Jesus to whom he gives an, a, a deposit and a responsibility, but there is also an accounting for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He did conquer death as he rose from the, from the grave. Jesus is who he says that he is, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to deal with Jesus whoever you are. And so if you are a servant who enters His kingdom, He will bring you before Him to give account of the way that you have invested your life in His cause. But if you are one who rejects Jesus Christ, you will be judged with death. That's what Jesus told us. That's the words of the one who conquered death. You're either going to disagree with his words or you're going to believe them. There is a judgment. That's reality. Jesus came to earth. He is gone, but he will return. And there will be a day of accounting for all. If you have your Bible, I invite you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to look at another take on this very point. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. This is clearly taught throughout Scripture, that there will be an accounting and there will be a day of judgment. It's not a popular theme in our day, but if we want to hear what the Bible says, we need to take such themes seriously. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, God is just. Paul writes to these who are suffering persecution. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Think of it. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. This includes you because you were such good people and were well connected to the religious community and did all of your religious service? No. This, this includes you because you are right before God by your good deeds? No. It is this includes you because you have believed. You have trusted in humble, childlike faith that what Jesus says is true. Because of you, because of that faith, you have escaped this judgment. Again, I ask, what right do we have to not read such texts in the Church of Jesus Christ in America today? This is reality, whether we want to believe it or not. There is a coming judgment, and Jesus Christ will be the dividing wedge 
of those who enter into his kingdom and joy and those who enter into destruction. That brings us full circle to the stewards. We have a job to do. We have a trust to keep. We have a gospel to proclaim. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Are you a faithful steward of the returning Christ? I ask this question on the authority of Jesus Christ, not on my own authority. And I ask myself the same question, and I'm troubled. I want to change. It says to us, servant of Jesus, it says to us, first of all, that our lives should be future-oriented. We must not live like evolutionists, simply surviving here as comfortably as we can, and completely discouraged when things don't go our way. We need to live with a future orientation. Life is not about the moment. Life is about the day I meet Jesus. There should be a future orientation. To follow Christ, to serve as His faithful steward, means that you live in light of your future accountability before Him. It affects the way you live. 